Well, it's such an honor for me to be here at Lake Point. My name is Ben Pilgreen, and I am the lead pastor of Epic Church in downtown San Francisco. When I say downtown, you're like, I don't know, are you really downtown? We are in a basement space, 11,000 square feet below Market Street. So right in the heart of downtown, there's a little game going on in the Bay Area today. But it was better to be with you at Lake Point. It was one of those things, if you don't have tickets to the game, why mess with the traffic? So I am here. Enjoy my time in the Metroplex. Grateful to be here at Lake Point and for all of those of you who are joining us online today, thankful that you're a part of what's going on. And I just wanna let you know how my being introduced to your pastor, Steve Stroop, and to Rick Burge, who oversees your national church partnerships, literally changed the trajectory, not only of my life, but of a church in downtown San Francisco. Because of your prayers and the mission teams that have come to serve alongside of us, uh, your incredible financial investment, and then the ongoing mentoring and coaching that I received from your pastor, it literally has changed the trajectory of our church. We've been able to do more in a shorter amount of time than we ever could have done on our own without your help. So Lake Point, just give yourselves a hand for being the kind of church for being the kind of church, like it's incredible. There are guys like me leading churches in strategic cities all over the US, and they're thriving due to what we receive from God's help, but certainly from his help through you, the people of Lake Point. I believe that Pastor Steve said that last Easter, Lake Point had more people worshiping in their church plants than they did even here at home base. So pretty incredible what you guys have been a part of and I'm thankful for it. I know my wife is thankful and so receive um, our gratitude. Every one of the 116 baptisms that have happened in the last five years in downtown San Francisco, you've played some role in that and the 50 nations that are represented in our church. So I just wanna say thank you so much. This Saturday, our church turns five years old. And again, what's happened in that time, yeah, it's huge. The only people not clapping right now are those that have never tried to start anything, right? Like, oh, what's the big deal? Well, you go to sleep most Saturday nights in those early days wondering, will anyone show up in the space? And thankfully, God has done an amazing work, and we're so thrilled about that. Here at Lake Point, we're in the middle of a series called The Struggle Is Real. And I don't know about you, but whenever I look back at earlier times in my life, I, I see moments that at the time seemed like they were massive in terms of struggle. Anyone else? You know, you look back, some of you ladies are like, yeah, yeah, I thought it was a struggle when I couldn't figure out which sweater to get from the store. It was like, oh, do I go with this color because it matches my eyes? But when we look back, we're like, some things just weren't that big of a struggle. When I was a teenager, one of my this is a real struggle issue moment for me happened one Saturday afternoon. I was in high school and I wanted to go join my friends at a swim party that was being hosted for the students in our church. And um, my car was there at the time. I had a 1984 gray Honda Accord. Um, some of you are like, wow, you're old. I wasn't old. It was 1994 and I was driving a 1984 gray Honda Accord. I was the only one home at the time, but I wanted to go to this party. The only issue was my mom's car was parked behind my 1984 gray Honda Accord, and her keys weren't there, and she wasn't home, and so I had to figure out a way, can I get around her car and get to the party that I must go to, otherwise the struggle will be real, right? 
I've got to be at the party. If there's a party, I've got to be there. And so um, I, I'm an eternal optimist, so I'm, I'm just figuring out a way to work myself around my mom's car. And the good news for any of you doubting me is I avoided my mom's car. The bad news is I did not avoid the red post underneath the carport. You've gotta choose the lesser of two evils in life. And so I chose, unbeknownst to me at the time, the red post, I, the smack happens, and I get out of the gray Honda Accord, and I look at the door, and there's red paint all over the side of it. But again, I'm an eternal optimist, so we're going to figure out a way to cover this thing up, go to the party, pull one over on mom and dad, and they'll never know. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, we didn't have a Target, so I had to look elsewhere for kind of that one-stop shop, and for me, the place was K&B Drugstore. So I didn't know what the solution would be, but I knew that K&B Drugs would have the solution. So I pull into the parking lot on Oliver Road in Monroe, Louisiana, where I grew up, and I go into the K&B Drugstore, and it's real important for you to know that it's starting to get dark at this time. That's an ingredient you will know to fully appreciate the story. I find myself on the spray paint aisle, I'm on the spray paint aisle and I'm thinking I'm going to find gray spray paint and of course I'm going to get outside, I'm going to paint over the red paint and all will be well. Unfortunately, though I thought that would work, they didn't have any gray spray paint, but they did have black. And black and gray, they're like in the same color family, right? I mean, they are in the same color family, and so you've got to do what you've got to do. And so I buy the black spray paint, I bring it out, I'm in the parking lot, it is dark now, okay? I need you to know this, I keep repeating this so that you'll give me a break in a moment. I shake it up and I begin spraying. And it's the most brilliant paint job you've ever seen. It's so brilliant that I think I've got to change what I want to be when I grow up, because I'm going to be a painter. It's just incredible. I, it, it's a little bit Picasso-like, if you know what I'm saying. So I go to the party, and I've got a huge grin on my face because no one's ever going to know. I enjoy the swim party with my friends. I go home that night, and I'm sleeping in absolute peace. I'm still sleeping peacefully the next morning when I hear this voice from down the hall. It's the voice of my father, and he says this, Benjamin, come here. Now it was Sunday morning and one of my dad's ways he would bless me on Sunday morning often would be to get me a chocolate filled donut from Shipley's, again, our local spot. I don't know what yours is. But he, he usually wouldn't have that tone of voice nor would he say my full name. It would just be Ben, I've got you some donuts. Awesome. But it's not that, it's Benjamin, come here. So, all right, Dad, so I come down the hallway. He says, follow me. We go outside, and it's out of mind for me, so I don't even know what's going on. I really can't remember why we would even be going outside, and my dad walks me around to the side, the left-hand side of that 1984 gray Honda Accord, and what seemed the evening before like this incredible cover-up now looks like this massive, like huge, horrendous, atrocious black storm cloud. And I'm like, that was amazing last night in the dark. <laughs> but it's no longer the dark, and it's no longer amazing. It's like the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. I thought I had it covered. Today, as we continue the struggle is real, we're going to talk about guilt and its, its close kin shame. And here's what happens with guilt and shame. We find ourselves exposed in some way before someone else or certainly spiritually speaking before God and what we wanna do like I did that Saturday evening was try to figure out a way to cover it up. 
The only problem is we haven't figured out any great solutions when it comes to covering up our guilt and shame. And what I wanna do is talk to you about how these things show up in our lives, how they first showed up in human history even, and what we try to do to, to cover ourselves up, to cover that sense of being exposed. We're talking about guilt and shame today, but for a moment or so, I want to talk just about shame because it's such a, a deeper thing in some ways than guilt is. Brene Brown, who is a social worker and researcher and has authored at least three books that I'm aware of, The Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, and Rising Strong. In that Daring Greatly book, she gets at the heart of the difference between guilt and shame, and it's an important distinction, though it seems simple, um, it's profound. She says that guilt simply means that I have done something bad or, or I've done something wrong. So we do something wrong to someone else or before God, some sort of sin, and, and, and we feel guilt, and we should. It can actually be a positive emotion that, that leads us to finding a solution. So I have done something bad. Shame, on the other hand, equals I am something bad. Shame gets to the heart of our identity, to the fundamental reality, the root of who we are. And I'm gonna say a few things about shame. Shame is that painful emotion, maybe more painful than any emotion we could feel. Shame is that pain that makes us believe that we aren't worthy of anything. We aren't worthy of the jobs that we have. We aren't worthy of the families we're a part of. We aren't worthy of the love of God. Shame is that thing that keeps us from looking at each other in the eye. Shame is something that if present in our lives, we're okay to come into a big room like this and remain anonymous, but shame is actually something that will keep you from joining a small group Bible study for fear of being exposed. Shame can lead to depression, it can lead to self-hatred, and it can lead to far worse than those things. The sources of shame are numerous. One of the sources of shame includes the things that we've done in the past. Another source of shame is the things that have been done to us in the past. We can have shame because of what we don't possess or we can have shame because of what we do possess in terms of our habits and addictions that we wish we didn't possess. And perhaps the greatest source of shame in our lives comes from the opinions and words of others. But for those of us who at least want to be followers of Jesus, let me tell you a huge source of shame in our lives. It's what we know to be true about God and what we know to be true about ourselves. So many people that sit in rooms like this or watch messages and services like this online, we, we begin to know some things about God, that he's holy and that he's perfect and that he's righteous, but we compare what we know about ourselves. And when we realize that we aren't holy and we aren't righteous and we aren't perfect, there's this massive distinction between what we know about God and the reality we know about ourselves. And so if we don't get the entire truth from the scriptures, we only get half-truths, what we do is see shame begin to set in in our lives. And so what I wanna do today is this. I want to show you where shame and guilt show up first in human history. I want to show you how we try to deal with our own guilt and shame. And then I want you to see what God's provision is in dealing with our guilt and shame. So if you have the Bible with you um, on your phone or actual hard copy of the scriptures, we're in Genesis two and three this morning. So turn to Genesis chapter two and Genesis three. I want to first read the last verse of Genesis chapter two. So in Genesis 2, 25, we'll see in just a moment what's going on before guilt and shame enter the scene for us. 
In the beginning, God creates. He creates over a six-day span of time, and he hits really the apex of his creation when he creates human beings. Genesis 1.27 says that he made us in his image. And the first one of us he made is a guy named Adam, and out of Adam he makes Eve, and there you have history's first marriage. And all is going well, so much so that Genesis 2.25 says this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now parents of kids and teenagers, I'm not going to do a message around that whole idea that you might think I am. Breathe easy, I'm gonna leave that for Pastor Steve. (laughs) But here's what's going on initially. This is what God's intention, this is the plan, this is the idea that God wanted to exist forever. You have a man and woman who are fully exposed before God, and they are fully exposed before each other, and yet they're without shame. For us today, if we're going to be fully exposed, there's going to be shame, right? And if I were to tell you there's a way you can live without shame, you might think the only way I could live without shame is if no one else knows the real me. Some of us have left jobs because people began to know the real us and there was some shame involved. Some of us have left our previous churches because people knew a little bit about our family's issues and there was shame involved. Some of us have even moved from other cities to the place we live now because shame just took over our lives and we couldn't handle the intense pain that shame brought to us. So for these guys, Adam and Eve, they are fully exposed, completely naked before God and completely exposed before each other and yet they are exposed without shame. But it doesn't take long for us humans to get it wrong, does it? I mean, all is perfect for two chapters in the Bible. We make it two chapters, give ourselves a hand, not really. We're not two chapters in before chapter three gets to this idea that the serpent representing Satan shows up and begins to tempt Adam and Eve. You see, in the garden, God had given them incredible freedom. He said to them, you can eat from that tree and you can have some of that fruit and you can eat from that tree over here, but just there's this one that you need to make sure stays off limits. There's a boundary around this one. Don't eat from this one, but the temptation happens. And in chapter three, verse six, you see where they give in. Genesis 3, six says, so when the woman saw that that one tree that was off limits was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So this is what's known theologically as the fall or where original sin enters the picture. Before they were fully exposed and no shame. They were present before God, completely present to each other and yet without shame and now sin enters the scene. Will they continue to have that exposed and unashamed relationship with God? Look at verses seven through 10. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
the scene changes all too quickly, does it not? In this initial moment, you have them fully exposed before God and before one another, and yet there is zero shame. And we see that and we think, that's the kind of life I would love to live. That, that there could be a possibility for me to be fully known by God and yet still experience no shame. Now, if you never laugh when you read the Bible, you should lighten up a little bit, okay? Before we get into the serious, look at verse seven. It's a little bit humorous to me. It says that their eyes were opened and then they realized they were naked. Now, don't raise your hand at the next question. This is just rhetorical. But how many of you have ever been naked and had no clue? If you're not laughing now, you need to lighten up. I mean, how many of you have shown up for work and the boss is like, hey, what about clothes? Are you showing up to your small group Bible study? Awkward. If you have, I know why you're at Lake Point and not the church you used to attend. I totally understand that at this point. It's not saying that they had no clue that they were unclothed. What it's saying is they had always been naked, but they had never felt naked until this moment. They had always been without threads on their body, but they had never felt like they had no coverage. And in this moment, they realize they're naked, and so they do what we've been doing ever since. They try to figure out a way to cover themselves. And every one of us, who have ever experienced guilt and shame, we have tried to figure out a way to cover ourselves too. Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves and loincloths. Some of us try to cover our guilt and shame by succeeding our way out of it. Some of us are wealthy enough to try to buy our way out of it. Some of us are so exhausted because we've been trying to do all we can to keep up our appearances so that no one gets to break in and see and know the real us. It's an exhausting thing, shame, and then we try to cover ourselves. What are you trying to cover your guilt and shame with? And then you see this moment where it says that God, verse eight, was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they heard him. Now this isn't the first day, probably, that they've heard God coming near to where they were in the cool of the day. God's like me, he doesn't wanna take walks, apparently, when it's noonday. He waits till it's the cool of the day, and if you're in Texas, you know that that's, a, that's something to understand, especially when uh, June, July, and August come. Is there a cool of the day during those? There's no, uh, exactly. Move to San Francisco. It's like 62 year round, if you're into that kind of thing. So this isn't the first day that God takes walks in the cool of the day, but this is the first time that they hear God coming close and they're not excited. Sound familiar to how you and I approach the presence of God? When things seem pretty good between us and God, we're all about church, we're all about singing worship songs, we're all about being in the scriptures, but when God seems at a distance, we do what Adam and Eve did, we try to hide ourselves. Where are you hiding in your life right now from God? Where are you hiding? You see, every day before this moment, they love when God would come near, but this time God comes near and they're hiding themselves. And God says to them in verse nine, where are you? Again, just to humor yourself a little bit, God has not lost the battery in his GPS. God is not unaware of their location. God is asking them this question because he wants them to understand what they've done, and Adam understands it. He says back to God, we heard you coming, 
And because we were naked, because we were exposed, because we were ashamed, we hid ourselves. And from what our first parents do in this moment, all the way to 2016, this is still what we do when we feel exposed before God. When we embrace guilt and shame and they just they reside over us, we do whatever we can to cover ourselves and hide. So again, those two questions, how are you covering yourself and where are you in hiding? How are you covering yourself and where are you in hiding? You see, Adam and Eve, they were right to feel exposed. They were right to crave some kind of covering, but just like my spray paint that night, their covering was inadequate. And so I want you to see what God does. While they're trying to sow themselves fig leaves and make loincloths, look at Genesis 3.21. Look at what solution God provides for Adam and Eve, and you will see in this moment a foreshadowing of the solution that God provides for you and me. It says in verse 21 of Genesis 3, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Who clothed them? God does. Again, they were right to be and feel exposed and to feel shame and guilt in that moment. They were right to crave a covering, but they, just like how we try to cover ourselves, they were inadequate in being able to cover themselves so God causes animals to die. He causes the sacrifice to happen so that he might clothe them. Do you see where this is headed? Do you see the foreshadowing of a sacrifice having to be made so that we human beings could be covered by our God when it comes to our guilt and our shame? See, some of us have used busyness to numb our guilt and our shame. Right, outwardly, we lament the fact that we're so busy, don't we? Anybody besides me, like, oh, how, when someone says to you these days, how are you, what's your answer? I'm so busy. And we act like we're upset about the fact that we're so busy at home and at the office, and even we may feel busy at church. We loathe the fact publicly, but inwardly, we're a little bit glad that we're so busy because busyness, we think, can numb our guilt and our shame. Another thing that happens with guilt and shame is that we plunge even deeper into our sin patterns. Let me show you a couple of examples at least. Let's say that you have shame around the idea that you're drinking way too much. Your spouse doesn't know about it, your coworkers don't know, your small group leader doesn't know, but you know it's just a little too much and you've got shame around that. But eventually the shame becomes so intense that you will do anything for a little bit of relief. And rather than coming clean and allowing God to cover you, you plunge deeper into your drinking issue because it offers temporary relief. Or let's say that you have sexual sin around, or shame around your sexual sin. You hate what you've done, what you've thought, what you've looked at, what you've participated in. You've tried to keep that a secret, but the shame is eating you alive. It's so intense that you want a way out, and so what you do, rather than come clean and let God cover you, is you go deeper into that because it seems to offer a moment of relief, or you go deeper into something else that is unhealthy and against God's best for your life. When it comes to our approach of guilt and shame, there are two prominent approaches, and I wanna tell you what two approaches we typically take, and I want you to identify which one you lean towards. One approach is to pretend like you have nothing to be guilty for. 
right? This is the person who says, yeah, what I did, it really wasn't so bad. I don't feel guilty at all, and I'm not going to feel guilty at all. The other end of the spectrum is the second approach, which says, you know what? I've done so many horrific things that it is impossible for me to be cleansed and forgiven. I wanna show you a New Testament text in 1 John chapter 1 and 2 that shows you what Jesus' plan is in dealing with our guilt and our shame. 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 is where I want us to start. 1 John 1 8 through chapter 2 verse 2. In these five verses, God's word addresses the error of the person who says, I have nothing to be guilty for, and it addresses the person who says, I am so guilty, there's no way out. Listen to what the text says. 1 John 1 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter two. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So if you're the person who says, I have nothing that I should ever have felt guilt or shame over, look at verses eight and 10. In verse eight, it says, to the person who says, I have not sinned, you deceive yourself. You deceive yourself. In verse 10 it says, if you say you have not sinned, you actually make God out to be a liar. So if you're the person who says, you know what, I've got this thing together, I don't need help, I don't need forgiveness, I'm not guilty, you are living in deception and you're making God out to be a liar. So for you, you need to quit pretending. You need to come clean, you need to own it. But then he also speaks to the person who says, I've done so much that I can't get out of my guilt or out of my shame. Look at verse nine. He says, if we confess our sins, which means to agree with God that what we've done is against his commands, it's against his intentions for us, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? From all. So the person says, but Ben, you don't know what I did last night or what I did 20 years ago. Uh, it's just too much, I don't know. It just seems like it's so weighty. And Jesus is going, hey, the cross is about taking care of all of it, all of it. So he's cleansed us from all of our unrighteousness. When chapter two begins, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. So here he is addressing the person who says, Jesus has forgiven me, I'll live however I want. He's like, no, 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 that's not the point. But then he goes on, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now Jesus has many titles in scripture, right? But when it comes to addressing our guilt and shame, it's very important to realize the title given to him here. It's Jesus Christ the, the, the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous, you're like, Ben, why is that important? That's important because if your guilt's going to go away, you need to have someone representing you who is righteous. And so he goes on to verse two, and he uses this big word, propitiation. 
It's hard to pronounce and it's even difficult to really understand, but to propitiate means to appease or to satisfy. So what does this have to do with guilt and shame? The scripture's telling us this. Jesus satisfied God's requirements for us so that even though we have sinned, we can stand before him as though we have not sinned. Typically what happens with our guilt and shame is we try to find a way to cover ourselves. But what you need to understand today is that you are inadequate to cover yourself, but you don't have to walk away hopeless. Jesus Christ is adequate to cover you through his death on your behalf. He's paid the price necessary so that you and I could stand before God fully exposed and unashamed. That's the whole point. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Here's the first one. Why are you still making yourself pay for sins Jesus already paid for? Why are you still making yourself pay for sins that Jesus already paid for? We sing songs of thanks. Jesus, thank you for the cross. But then we go beat ourselves up and try to make ourselves cover our own sin. If I were to hand you an Apple Watch this morning that I bought for you, this is hypothetical, all right? You're like, no, I'm, we're strangers. I'm not giving you an Apple Watch. But if I were to give you an Apple Watch that I paid hundreds of dollars for and you told me, Ben, thank you, yet when you left Lake Point, you went to the Apple store with several hundred of your own dollars to try to pay for that Apple Watch, do you know that it would be illegal for Apple to accept money for a watch that already had been paid for? And yet some of us with our sin, we say, Jesus, thank you, but then we spend the rest of our week trying to pay for it and cover ourselves. Romans 8, perhaps the greatest chapter in the scriptures, it begins with this verse. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And here's what we need to know. The one who could condemn us completely doesn't condemn us at all. Think about that. Like you can hide things from your friends and even your family members, but you're laid bare before God. If there's anyone who's holy enough and knowledgeable enough to condemn you for your sin, it would be God. But the one who could condemn you completely doesn't condemn you at all. You know, one of the titles given to Satan in the scriptures is that of the accuser. Isn't it funny how Satan plays us on both sides of our sin? You saw what he does with Adam and Eve and what he does with us. He tempts us to give in to sin. And then after God cleanses us from that same sin, Satan wants us to believe that we're still held guilty for it. But Hebrews 12, two, talking about Jesus, says this, that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross Scorning its shame. Friends, every one of us has sinned and has experienced guilt and shame. And you've got two choices to make. You, continue, you can continue to try to cover yourself or this day you can receive the covering that Jesus has bought for you. And could I just encourage you as my last word to you, receive his covering. Mine is inadequate and yours is inadequate. His is adequate so that you can stand before God in his presence, fully exposed, fully forgiven, unashamed. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that your intention for us is to be fully exposed in fellowship with you and in fellowship with each other, and yet without shame. But God, we have sinned, and the only way out of it is for us to have a covering God, like Adam and Eve sowing fig leaves, we've tried to cover our own sin, our own guilt, pay for our own shame, and we must receive the sacrifice you've provided 
to offer us the coverage you've given. God, I pray that every person watching, God, every person listening would receive your covering. It's exhausting and inadequate to cover ourselves. So Jesus, today we receive your covering for us and we're so grateful for it. In your name we pray, amen.